uh, people sometimes question my choice of <laughs> subject matters. Uh, in this case, uh, the four aspects of mind that I've chosen, the four, four distortions of mind, started out with the controlling mind and went to the obsessive mind. Tonight, uh, we'll talk about the isolated mind and next week, the moody mind. Uh, some traditional Buddhists want to know where they fit in the literature. Others want to know why we're not talking about, you know, dependent origination or something more connected to Buddhism. But unless Buddhism connects to you, it means nothing. And so I uh, bring what I understand Buddhism to be into an, an, an application into our lives. And I don't know anyone that I'm aware of that doesn't have one of these four distortions and probably complicated by all four. So it's to make it relevant, to make it meaningful, so that we can apply the principles of Buddhism that we learn through the meditation and through the traditional studies of the Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path, which we will alternate themes, but to make it applicable. Why is this relevant? And I think as we go along, uh, for us to cast ourselves in the image of the talk so that we see ourselves within the talk, uh, very few of us can say that we have no aspect of control within us or that there isn't, we don't get hooked into obsessive thinking where our thinking just goes around circular and we don't seem to be able to get out of that kind of carousel propulsion of thought. And tonight is another difficult subject, but why not, right? <laughs> and and the, what I find is that there's enormous empowerment that occurs in taking on these subjects. I was just, uh, I was taking a walk this afternoon and I was just feeling the empowerment of the Dharma, where instead of running and hiding and then dying with what we've hid from, hidden from our whole lives, we, we go in search of the very dark recess corners of our mind and bring light to it. And we seek out those destructive tendencies, destructive to ourselves and often painful to others. And we make an intention and a purpose to understand and to bring these things into clear awareness. And it just, that is the ultimate empowerment. And from that comes a kind of joy a, uh, a sense of, vi of vitality and joy that I hope that you may be feeling even as you feel the fear of approaching these difficult regions of the mind. First, it's always going to be fearful. That's the nature, that's why the, how the mind holds us at bay is through its fear. You can't look at that because it will tell you something about yourself. It will indeed. But if we are willing to go through that, then what it begins to say the messages, the decoding of the system is very impersonal and very light and really doesn't say anything about you at all. There's no you to say anything about. And so it's just, it's just an impersonal process. So tonight, the isolated mind. The isolated mind. Now, why would I choose a topic like that? I mean, we have our cultural references to isolated minds. We have the uh, Theodore 
Puszynski's or whatever his name was, the Unabomber, in the nice little remote setting in the backwoods of some hillside, sitting there uh, just with his own mind, generating thought after thought. And because there's no input, because there's no ability for feedback or for questioning the thought, the thought just implodes upon itself, building pressure upon itself. Feel it? You feel it in you? Every head should nod. <laughs> now, I want to make a distinction between the isolated mind and, and the mind that seeks solitude. Just let me tell you a personal story. Um, when I was uh, leaving my lay life to become a monk, uh, another Western monk was uh, saying, um, bidding me farewell at the airport as I was getting on the plane. And he said, doesn't it feel good to be leaving uh, the hectic qualities of the culture? And I said, no, well, that's not why I'm doing this. I'm doing it because I'm, I'm drawn towards the solitude, not away from something, but towards something. It was a heart connection, really. It wasn't fear. There was no fear in it. I wanted to go. I wanted to go because it felt like a vital cord of understanding through that. And that's the way solitude, can, we can approach solitude, is a, is a friend, is a something that is almost inviting. It's just, oh, I get to be quiet. Have you, have you felt that? That beauty of, of quiet. Versus isolation, which is cutting ourselves off from input, cutting ourselves off from, from and uh, when I came back from being a monk, the reason I left being a monk was that solitude was no longer feeding me in the same way. I knew that I could stay there. As a matter of fact, I had exaggerated expectations of my maturity. <laughs> I didn't think I could be shaken. I didn't. And it took me one train ride to Bangkok <laughs> to prove myself wrong. <laughs> but <laughs> when I came back and I found myself back in the States, and because I had been practicing uh, out of IMS for three years and then four years as a monk and then came back to IMS, and it was a total of eight years that I'd been in uh, relative a solitude, reclusive living, I also felt uh, new staff and new yogis, uh, uh, their projections on where I, what I was, should be after eight years of that kind of solitude. And because it was very early on in the training of Buddhism in this country, not a lot of people, there were very few people who had done that kind of long, intensive practice at that time. And so there was a lot of projection. I mean, I had to, I had to leave that setting and go where I knew I could look people in the eye and they would give me feedback and not hold me in some kind of projected hierarchy or sense of... So I went down to Texas where I knew no one, absolutely no one, involved myself in a hospice program where they could care less what I'd been doing, but they were very interested in calling me and holding me responsible to the job I was applying for. 
it was really important for me to meet people on a very human basis. And it's both humbling, but it's also life-saving to have that kind of feedback come in. Now, I don't know what your particular professions are, but each one may or may not hold a kind of or a kind of status that you can get locked into, be it doctor, lawyer, or anything. Even on the job, a status can be, even if it's not held by society at large. And to be clear in ourselves that whether we feed into that status and are willing and able to receive feedback, or whether the status keeps us at keeps feedback at bay. Keeps it, uh, teaching is a very um, isolated role. People, for whatever reason, don't offer, often don't offer um, honest feedback to the teacher. And it's very important for me to have Sharda and other teaching peers. You know, um, when they come through here, they often stay with me. And I appreciate that because I get a good sense of... Um, a participation and camaraderie and feedback, which is vital. It's vital for us all. Uh, when I, I was uh, when I came out from being a monk, I was very happy living alone and could have remained in that way, but I knew I wasn't going to be pushed enough. So I um, decided I was going to get into a relationship. It was a very conscious decision. It wasn't a need. It wasn't a panic like I have to have a relationship. It was the seeing that I could remain this way the rest of my life, but a relationship would add a certain dimension, a certain, a certain um, a tone and uh, inequality to my life that I really desperately needed. So, I mean, oftentimes seeking... I mean, all we have, the only resource we have in the end is other people. Because we can't trust this mind. We can't trust it to show us the truth. It's not going to tell us the truth. We can trust awareness, attention. Our awareness can be trusted because we're not adding judgment in our awareness. But often that's very... Because behind there, there's judgment going around, which is just more mind. It's interpretation of what we're seeing, but we're not catching it. And so for a long period of time, our meditation can be very hooked in to a kind of judgment that, we're, that we affirm in each sitting. And an attitude can creep up. Most of us live with a kind of attitude. I don't know what your particular attitude is, but it's a sort of way that you present yourself to the day. Right? And that attitude can, can become solidified over time. And that attitude can become a, a very defined way that we approach life and situations as they arise. This especially is true as you get older. Aging is very interesting because it hardens the attitudes because we've lived with them. We've never challenged them our whole life and they just get harder and harder and harder. I mean, I live across the street from an 83-year-old woman and some of her beliefs are like I have this conversation with her, and she's like, I can't believe where the, I mean, and she's like, totally believes this. And I'll just, I'll walk back scratching like, <laughs> oh, please, not me. 
we have to be careful. You know, it's not, a, it's not really a light thing. And also, you see, it's not just the individual that can get locked up into isolated patterns and ways of thinking. It's couples, right? And we often, we have a, we develop a certain harmony with the other person. And that harmony is often the result of embracing each other's attitudes so that we don't question the very posture of the way we live as a couple. And especially if that couple feels more remote or, or say, is self-employed or, or retired, then there can be this kind of implosive, and they do everything together so that there's no way for any other informing sources to get in there. I've seen that. And they could, do, they could think that everything is fine and that you see uh, you know, something, something's a little... Because we don't allow, we don't allow, and oftentimes there's this tendency to cut ourselves off from things that will give us that feedback because it challenges us in some way. It challenges the very pattern or attitude that we live out of. So we just better not, better not have that. And we find often couples becoming more and more isolated from the very thing which would give them that essential quality of growth, which is other people. But it's not just couples. I mean, if I say the word Branch Davidian, if I say the word Jim Jones, where does that, you see? Unwilling to question. Well, that's not this group. That's not this group. If you're not willing to question, don't come because it's not the right practice for it. This is all about that. This is totally about that. I mean, whole countries can do it. Look at Germany in World War II. Just going along. Insulated. Life's going along. 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, dead. No input. No, no willing to be resonant to resilience. The whole purpose of Dharma is to challenge ourselves, is to question ourselves. So we say to ourselves, well, what's the difference between this group and Jim Jones? Everything. Because the purpose of the Sangha, as one of the gems of the teaching, is to question, is to look within ourselves and to question how it is and what it is that we're holding in our isolated position, how it is that we're holding fast and not breathing in the air of inclusion. Dharma is always inclusive, never exclusive. If you remember nothing from tonight's talk, remember that. Always, and I don't like absolutes, it's always. It has to be. There can be nothing outside of our hearts. And if we find ourselves becoming less inclusive, then we need to question what we're doing. If we find ourselves becoming more exclusive, less willing to have, to be open, more cut off, more opinionated, you know what 
through your opinions and through your views. And Dharma practice can, if you have a tendency, which most of us do, to hold those kinds of views and opinions, Dharma practice can feed that opinionated self. After a number of years in a particular tradition, I was very opinionated about this particular tradition. And as, one, as I was leaving a, a particular style of practice that I had spent a number of months doing in Burma, a friend of mine was going over there, and I was trying to dissuade him. I was trying, being very opinionated and telling him that uh, doesn't he see that he's just uh, going to fall into, I don't know, doesn't matter. <laughs> it was just an opinion. But I didn't see it as an opinion. I didn't see it as a view. I thought I saw it as the truth. And for me, it was a truth. It was something I had seen. Actually, in my practice, I had seen it. But I had taken it and making a conclusion about it. And in that formation of a conclusion, I had taken myself out of the Dharma and become exclusive. You see, there's an interesting Buddhist story. Somebody came to the Buddha and said, Buddha, how do you safeguard the truth? Now, most of us cleverly would say, the truth doesn't need safeguarding. But the Buddha, probably because of the nature of the question and the questioner, he said, the way you safeguard the truth is to never say that this is the way it is. Never say that. Never say that this is how it is, and then you safeguard the truth. Isn't that beautiful? Nothing to stand on. No conclusions, opinions available. Accepted. Never say this is how it is. And if we are willing to foster that sense of questioning, to foster that sense, even within ourselves, of, okay, because then what happens is when we feel ourselves in a definite stance with an opinion, right, of you, when you can feel the tension created between my stance and someone else's counter view, you take that view and you process it through the Buddha's statement. Never say that this is how it is. And if we have an inkling of what we're doing or spending our life or what direction we're taking, we'll question that view. We'll question that stance, not just assert it. In the willingness to question, we are then back into the flow of the Dharma. But to question it means that we have to go back behind ourselves and see why this view is so important to us. Not just to say, oh, views and opinions. We whitewash things. You know, we read in the Buddhist literature, be careful of attachment of views and opinions. We'll have them. <laughs> Which is a view and opinion. <laughs> so you have to go back. We have to go back further. We have to be quieter than that. You have to be quieter than that. 
we have to look at what it is that keeps substantiating ourselves into views and opinions, where we lose ourselves, and why it's so important to take that stance within the view, what attitude we are fostering moment after moment, which re-solidifies ourselves into that view and opinion. It's not just whitewashing it and saying, I won't do it anymore. I'll be good. And what we begin to find is that the very willingness to take a view and to hold ourselves fast to an opinion, to have an opinion, right? Well, first of all, let me say that I, I, don't, I know very few minds that don't hold opinions. Okay? Very few. And those of us who see ourselves as being liberal often have the most views <laughs> and opinions. We think we're so open, so tolerant, right? We just haven't been pushed to that point of argument, that point in which we will defend, that point in which we will, our back gets raised. But it's there. Listen to the political discussions that are going on and see if your back doesn't get raised on one part of your... <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> See? And for some of you have heard this story, but my hospice program, uh, a group of very uh, fundamental Christians from this area approached our hospice program and wanted to hook up their organization with our organization. They were going to provide the volunteers and we were going to provide the professional staff. And uh, it would be, you know, we would serve nine fundamental Christians. So I took that to the staff as a director. I said, okay, now what do, you, what do you think about this? And now hospice philosophy in its heart of hearts is absolutely open to everyone. doesn't matter who gender, sexual orientation, nothing, nothing, everybody come to the hospice program. That's the fundamental principle. That's the prime directive. Okay, got it? <laughs> so I take this to the staff and the staff says, oh, I don't think we, why don't you give it to the other hospice across town? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? They said, well, I, we don't want to go into that house and have them proselytize and try to convert us. I said, why not? Are you afraid that, that they'll work? It'll work? <laughs> <laughs> Are you that easily? <laughs> no, we just don't want to hassle. Just, just let it go. Just send them to the other hospice program. I said, I'm not sending them to the other hospice program. We're going to look at why it is that we want them to go there. You see, this is, this is the most open organization that I've ever been a part of. And there was the area. That was where, that was it. That was where, our, you know, where we... We'll serve everybody, but not them, right? We'll be open to everyone, but not, well, not my mother. <laughs> I mean, you don't know my mother, right? You know, right. So I'll be open, qualifying. The Dharma is always inclusive. That is an absolute statement about absolute freedom. 
Where does that lead us? It leaves us working on those areas in which we are exclusive. That's all. It's just looking, willingness to look, willingness to open to those parts that need that surveillance, that attention, that input. Never say this is how it is. And the reason that we often take these stances, these hardened stances with views, with opinions, with our isolation, the way we back off is because we think we can keep ourselves fixed and stationary by holding on to our views. We think that we can just, you know, if we just, we think we can keep the world at bay in some way. We can keep it defined. Me and everything's so defined. I'm defined and the world is defined through my views. You see? It defies the law of nature. It defies change. It defies it. The whole point is to let nature in so that it can inform us about its nature, about its characteristics, what it is. Allow it in, opening ourselves up to be affected by things. We don't have to be worried that we're all going to convert to fundamental Christianity. What happens in an open mind is that there's also clarity. Clarity arises out of openness. So you have flotsam and jetsam. I can't remember which one floats. I think it's flotsam. But whatever floats, that's what remains. Everything else just sinks. You don't have to worry about it. People won't convert us behind our back. <laughs> Some liminal tape. <laughs> So, not to deny our prejudice, not to deny it. We look around, we see something that we're prejudiced, maybe it's a race, maybe it's a gender, maybe it's a sexual orientation, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Maybe it's just a prejudice against a particular part of ourselves. Maybe we just don't like the shape of our body or our anger. We have lots of prejudice. But Dharma is always inclusive. Okay, let me see what's going on here. It in, we invite the invitation. We invite seeing in. We invite the, the seeing, the awareness. And, and so the very things that would normally back us away from life and enclose us into an isolated mind become the very cues that have the call our attention inward, the call our attention to that spot, to that point of constriction, of contraction. <laughs> and some of us, some of us become isolated merely to go along, merely as a way of going along. comes another kind of group spirit, like Germany in World War II. 
afraid to step out, afraid to be different, afraid to question. Well, we have to re- arouse the courage to do that. And we, and we condition that courage into ourselves through using ourselves as the template for that courage, as the blueprint. How do we guard against being cut off? I always like these sections of the talk. They give us some practical how to do it, right? So now we see the problem. See the problem? Well, you know, I have been willing and able to trust an inward sense in myself that I know what I need. As I was mentioning, knowing that I needed solitude at some point and also then knowing that I needed relationship was an inward sense in me. And we each have that inward sense. So much of spiritual practice is simply doing what we know we need to do. It's fine-tuning our honesty to admitting what we need to do and doing it. If I have touched any of you in your isolation, what do you need to do? What's calling out? What's beckoning you? It's so easy to just follow the old conditioning of further and further solitude and isolation. That is where Sangha is raised to the equivalent of the Buddha. It's through others that we reach salvation. Because much of what we need to do is to include others in our heart. In doing so, we include the parts of ourselves that have been excluded through our projection and through our discrimination. And just to know that. To ask for feedback and input from people you trust. So you just want another, you just want another side, you want another vantage point, another perspective on this thing. What do you see me doing? See a little selfishness there. Okay, so how do you, how do you see that? And then you just feel it in yourself whether it's true or not. You don't just take it for a fact. You say, oh yeah, that, that feels true to me. Bring whatever stance or attitude drives our life into our conscious attention. Don't die with it. I don't care what your attitude is. <laughs> it's not worth dying with. Because ultimately an attitude leads to isolation. It cuts us off from some people, perhaps connects us with others. Here's one. Having a healthy mistrust of what the mind tells us. Don't believe it. See it, and then all the elaboration don't believe. Look through your eyes, see the objective fact, 
and how you elaborate on it is extra. You don't need it. You've seen it. You've looked. Don't believe what other people tell you about other people because they're just trying to get you to accompany their opinion. Don't believe what anyone tells you about the Dharma, but see it for yourself. After that, after the scene, everything else can be mistrusted. It makes it very simple. <laughs> scene is believing. <laughs> be aware of conclusions and opinions. That's the sound of the mind turning on itself. When you find yourself opinionated or reaching a conclusion, it needs, we need to back off of that and see what emotion or attitude is driving that need for opinion. See where we're forming ourselves in that equation of self. Now the art of meditation is the art of relationship. It's impossible for us to exist without being in relationship. Even the hermit is in relationship because there's two in all of us that are here in this room. There's two. So we're either relating to things or people or internal processes all the time or identified with those things. So really, the art of Dharma is to understand how it is that we have locked ourselves into this two-ness, into this assumption and perspective of two-ness, of you and me. So we take what we take the world to be, which is two, and we go backward and translate and see where, how one gets translated into two. That's all Dharma is about. Seeing where we've messed it up where we've lost our way, where we've contaminated what we perceive. That's all it is. So using relationship to show us that is the art of Dharma and meditation. Meditation is all about understanding the nature of relationship. And again, I'm not just talking about relating with people. I'm talking about relating with anything, relating with our minds. In the very moment of relationship, you have two. So it's only through how it is that equation breaks into two-ness that we can understand how it broke into two-ness. We have to look at it. We have to look at the relationship. And what we find is that the relationship is usually one in which we don't want it to be there or we're holding on fast and wanting it to perpetuate. And when we do that, we create and fracture the mind so that it can be fearful and turn away from what it doesn't like or hold on and indulge to in what it does. And so the nature of Dharma is to understand how it is that we lose ourselves in moving towards or against the rest of the world. <coughs> and when we understand how it is that the mind does that, then we have gone from two back to one. And the best means to do that is with people. Because most of the fracturing occurred through other people's input. 
telling us or we assuming that we weren't good enough or bad enough or comparison, evaluations, all of that. So to work with people in the thick of things through sangha or through couples or family or just neighbors, the hard ones, the crazy ones, we begin to see where it is that we continually fracture this world and lose ourselves in it. You see, that's why community gives us the greatest advantage towards solving the ultimate problem, spiritual problem. But most of us don't use relationship in that way. We may be in a couple relationship, but we don't use it that way. We use it to be comfortable in. We use it to soothe ourselves, and we'll die soothed. But we won't die having used that very relationship to see where it is, see, to see the, the tugging, where it comes, where, where the tug is there. So each other is both our hell and our salvation. Jean-Paul Sartre's No Exit, he says, uh, the conclusion of No Exit, where people are locked in this room together, is that hell is other people. Well, that's true. It's also, though, the way out. Now you begin to see where Sangha comes back up. Instead of jetsam, it comes floating back up as... Well, maybe it's, and if we're so quick to run out of here at 9 o'clock, we have other, you know, what's that about? What's that about? Are we missing an opportunity? Are we missing one of the fundamental opportunities that not only this community provides, but the world provides? have to get back home so I can close my door. <laughs> The open mind allows everything to inform it. So challenge yourself. Challenge yourself to listen to the other sides of the issue, the other side of the equation, the other the opinions that are counter to your own to the Republicans or the Democrats, depending upon which side you're on. Just listen to them. You don't have to vote for them. Just listen to them. Challenge your prejudice through direct experience of getting to know a prejudiced person. Getting to know, sit down, have coffee with them, sit down with them. Ask yourself, is this style and stance of life connecting me more towards life or not? And when you answer that question, is it, is this, am I connecting more and more to things? You will answer the question on whether you are spiritually growing or not. I was in, I found myself, I mean, it's, spiritual path is a very, it's very tricky 
very tricky. I found myself in a group of people, a sangha, a people in which there was, it was a, a kind of a cult, but there was enormous intensity to it and a, and a, lot, of very, a lot of clarity and understanding was coming from it. No doubt, no question about that. But there was a kind of a cultish quality. I, at some point, I, I broke out of it because I asked myself, is this scene making me more inclusive or exclusive? And it was making me more exclusive. Ask yourself that. Is the scene that you're in, the sangha you're in, is the practice you're doing making you more inclusive or exclusive? It doesn't mean that your interests won't change so that old friends don't have the same lure that they used to. Often that will change just in the course of life. But you won't leave them out of your heart. You won't exclude them from life because they aren't doing what you're doing. Then we can begin to heal ourselves and begin to reconnect. It takes everything. It takes us all, you see? It takes everyone. It takes us all. But then, wouldn't you rather have it that way? <laughs> I don't want to have to go back into the jungle and sit there for no juice in that anymore. <laughs>